You're listening to Distilling Craft, Episode 7, You Only Still Twice. Today we're going to be talking with Chip Tate of Tate & Company out of Waco, Texas. Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the U.S. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Distilling Craft. I'm Colleen Moore. Hey, just a quick thing before we start today's show. While we're hard at work lining up new interviews and producing new shows, and you are so kindly waiting on us, we're going to reissue a couple of our episodes from Season 1 with some previously unreleased material mixed in. We revisit Episode 7 from Season 1 with Chip Tate from Tate & Company in Waco, Texas. Chip was formerly with Balconies, but he's now firmly in his second act with Tate & Company, a distillery and a copper works where he's designing and building his own pot stills. Later, our radiogenic part-time distiller DJ talks about the anatomy of a pot still. Welcome to the show, Chip. Thanks. So since most of your day is is spent making stills right now, I figured we'd kind of jump right into some of the, the technical aspects. What kind of stills are you making? We make pot stills. I've always used and been partial pot stills, and so that's that's what we make at the Copperworks. You know, there are other great companies that make columns, but that's just not our thing. Oh, uh, I know in the in the past you've been a, a proponent of direct fired stills, and you know, obviously there's some engineering aspects around how to work a direct fired still into the distillery. Can you talk about some of what you're doing with direct fire? Yeah, I mean the. <clears throat> The direct fire stills that I make, I mean, the, the advantage is most, most people are, are at least a little aware, uh, aware of in terms of the flavor development that can happen. It always depends on what you're distilling, of course, in terms of what those flavors are that can be developed in the, during the first distillation. Um, from my standpoint, you know, during a second distillation or third distillation, you know, it, it really doesn't make that much difference other than an evenness of heat, which could be done any number of different ways, uh, including, but not limited to direct fire. But, um, but yeah, we've got, uh, we've got our first distillation done via direct fire. And the, the challenge there is, you know, some of it, you've just got to make the stills thicker and more structurally robust because of all that, um, all that heat stress. Um, then there's a, a wear component in terms of, Typically, you've got some kind of mixing. We have kind of unique mixing systems I won't go into right now, but um, their advantage is they don't have any uh, friction other than just the swirling motion of the the liquid to wear the stills down, which is something that often uh, is a a major factor. You know, most people are using agitators or even rummagers, and rummagers uh, will course wear down the thickness of the bottom of the still as they scrape over it over over the years so you know the the final thing you you don't really think about too much until you do a direct fire still especially above a certain size i'd say above say two or three hundred gallons is the structural component of making sure that you can support all of that weight in a very hot oxidative environment uh, you know, things like steel that we usually use for structure start to get a little unhappy when they get above seven, 800 degrees 
uh, constant duty. So there's some challenges there too. Uh, with the flavor development, are you mainly talking about caramelization or what, what are the flavor developments you see happening in the, on the first pass? Yeah, so uh, Maillard reactions, Amadori reactions, uh, the, the, the caramelizing, the, the browning effect. So they're not always, you know, caramelizing effects are in that class uh, of reactions, but, you know, many of the sorts of flavors that we associate with, with freshly baked bread or with beer, for instance, are actually the production of uh, Maillard reactions in the, in the kettle or sometimes in the malting process. But either way, um, those hotter temperatures are necessary to create those flavors. Uh, typically, those reactions are occurring on the, the sugars themselves. Sugars and proteins, yeah. So, you know, this is a kind of oversimplification. But in general, you're talking about, uh, you know, simple sugars and simple proteins in an aqueous solution and, you know, not at 200 degrees, you know, four or 500 degrees. And so that's the sort of thing where you need an, an elevated uh, heating surface temperature to achieve that. Obviously, with any sort of standard high-pressure steam, I mean, even high-pressure steam, you can only get to 300 and change. It's all going to be a function of the pressure of the system. But you can't, you know, you can't really practically get to, say, 500 degrees. I don't know what the... <laughs> with the steam pressure would be uh, at that temperature, but I'm pretty sure it's off off the chain. It's probably like 25 bar or something like that, something off off the uh, commercially acceptable uh, scale. Um, what are you? I mean, are you filtering your washes before you run them into those stills? Or are you trying to remove the grain and yeast things that are burning at that temperature? Or are you? How, we how lauder uh, a malt mash, you know, like so many people do. So in other words, if it's a a malted, typically malted barley, then we'll use a mash lauder ton to separate them. But in other cases, no. So um, any sort of corn whiskey, you know, if we were to do other small grains, um, even something I might do with fruit that might have some solids in it or something, we we will keep all that in. Uh, so you're just relying on the agitation then to prevent the burning of, of your kind of non- you know, my art solids, the proteins. Right, right. We have this system, again, I won't get too into it right now, um, but it, it uses a um, kind of carefully done recirculation process to keep fluid moving along the bottom on the heating surface. So, you know, the point is that other than maybe assisting convection a little bit and heating faster from a burning standpoint, it's like making oatmeal, right? It really doesn't matter whether you stir the top of the pot. It matters if you stir the bottom of the pot. And so that's what that system is focused on, is to keep things moving at the heating surface. Uh, so the other big problem with direct fire is is the safety end. Uh, how are you guys looking at either the venting, the chimney effect on your direct fire, or preventing... Uh, a possible, you know, leak in the still to causing problems? Yeah, I mean... Um... I think, you know, I, one thing I always like to say is, is that um, you're right, but with some caveats, right? So potentially one thing that makes a steam still, which we also use, um, safer, is that lack of an ignition point uh, in terms of an open flame. Of course, one thing that can make a steam still less safe is its lack of an ignition point <laughs> because, 
you know, you don't want anything to burn or explode, but if it's going to, there's some places that it's better for it to do that than others. So for instance, if you have a well-designed firebox, um, God forbid the still were to leak, better that it leak in there, you know, you've got a, ve a well-ventilated fireproof space. Um, the same sort of thing is still have to, I mean, you still have to constantly inspect your stills and make sure everything's good and, and do, do all the things the stillers should do to check the, to make sure that their equipment's still in good condition, you know, make sure that there's no panting, which is as, as the still ages and gets thinner, um, you can actually, as it comes up to pressure, you can see the shoulders expand very slightly, which just means that, you know, the copper is thinning out there where the vapor hits it. Um, but, you know, the, the, the main issues on safety, you have to, to, to do a thicker still, uh, mostly for thermal stress. But then the flip side of that is, you know, on our wash stills, we have probably seven eighths thick, very carefully welded and tested weld, which makes it less likely than a thinner piece of metal to leak, all things being equal. Um, I think a lot of the safety issues, honestly, are pretty similar. You know, the only other real safety issue is structural, making sure that whatever is supporting the still can handle the temperatures and the weights. Uh, you know, that's a bit of a trick. So we use some some pretty exotic stainless alloys and cooling systems to make sure that the support structure for the still uh, doesn't fatigue and eventually give way because that can, um, well, you, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can imagine what happens if it still, uh, crashes down on top of a, on top of a burner or something. It, it's not good. It probably just means the still will stop distilling, but it could be worse than that. But I think that, um, most of the really important safety things are consistent across all types of stills. And I think that the most important thing is good ventilation and good ethanol sensing. Because, you know, one general engineering principle is true. If you can make sure that the air is moving and not coalescing anywhere and that the alcohol level is below a certain amount, you're not going to have a fire. And that's, that's pretty basic because all equipment will eventually fail. The question is what happens when it does. Nope, that's, that's exactly it. Um, what other uh, technology, or not technology is probably the wrong word, but what are you doing with your stills to kind of help control and influence the flavor they're producing? Uh, I've read a bunch of papers on the, the shape of the head. You know, everybody talks about the, the line arm and incline versus decline. Kind of what are you doing to look at what do you think is important? Yeah, I mean, in many respects, our, um, the stills we do are pretty conventional. Some of the... Um, you know, some of the particulars, like for instance, my uh, spirit stills have double steam jackets, which allows me to heat things up more quickly and also only heat from the bottom in a more gentle way later on in the distillation. You know, kind of like a uh, jet, you know, jets or, or planes, I guess, are a lot like stills in that, you know, you don't, you don't make them act a certain way but you do create a set of possibilities. Um, you know, you're, you technically you can make vodka on a pot still, um, just like you can dig a swimming pool with a garden spade. But 
it ain't the easiest way, you know? Um, now that's not an argument against pot stills. Pot stills are really good at doing other things that column stills, in my opinion, aren't as good at for the same reasons. Do you know what I mean? They're different, they're different tools. And, um, really it's going to come down to creating a still where you can run it and it's the control factors that you really need. And so what I mean is say in a pot still system, things are going to be set up to operate pretty smoothly inside of a certain reflux range, just like, you know, just like different airframes are set up to fly well under certain circumstances. Um, you know, it's not to say that you can't make them go faster than that to a point or make them go slower than that to a point, but they may struggle. Do you know what I'm saying? That, um, something, you know, take a 747. It's meant to carry a whole lot of people very safely at a relatively slow speed for a jet. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that that plane is designed to do well, but make really sharp, tight turns in one of them <laughs> because you can't, you can't have all of that. And the same sort of thing with our stills, you know, they're, they're really designed around both the heating system. So it's going to be the cooling in the room, the shape of the still, the thickness of the metal and the heating system you put on it. Because the, the natural reflux you build into the still is going to depend in part on how quickly you're running it. So almost all pot stills, if you've got a big enough heat under them, it really doesn't matter how they're shaped because you're just going to be blasting vapor up through the top of it, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, others that when you slow them way down, the more, you know, upward ascent you have, the more, you know, transient turb turbulent mixing you have and things like that, the more potential there is to create a much higher reflux situation. You know, do you want that or not? And how stable, you know, where do you need it to be? It's, it's very much like kind of designing an airframe that way. Um, cause when you drop below that stall speed, the, the analog there for, a, for a pot still is going to essentially be the equi equilibrium point, right? Where the amount of cooling and heating going into it is exactly the same. And for some stills like column stills set up on equilibrium pretty, pretty easily. Cause well, once, once they get going, cause they're meant to do that pot stills can be a little more finicky depending. Yeah. That what are you doing with the cooling? I mean, so you, you've got your basic radiant cooling through the thinness of the metal, uh, but what other things are you kind of doing to help increase or decrease uh, reflux in your head for various styles or desires of whiskey or other products? Well, you know, for instance, on our direct fire stills, one thing that's kind of novel is we've, I mean, it's not that novel, but it's, it's not as common, I suppose. We have a infrared burner assembly that isn't just one burner, for instance, it's, it's a number of burners. And also it transmits a lot of the heat into the still via infrared heat. Because one of the problems you can have with direct fire or something like a power burner is that you've got really high velocity going through there. And so the more you turn up the burner, the faster the gas is moving through the system and the more you can end up you know, heating up your flue pipe twice as fast as you're heating up your still. Um, but with, with this burner system, we can control different arrays of burners to give a lot more precision on overall heating level and also to make sure that, 
that our efficiencies are higher than you typically see in a in a direct fire system. How are you monitoring that during operation? Uh, are you looking at sensors, or is this a, a look in there? And and you know what what does your monitoring system on your flame look like for that kind of system? Well, I mean the way the way that system is set up is essentially manual in terms of how you actually correct. You know, you could arbitrarily say zero to one hundred, or for us, it would really be broken down to kind of there's a minimum sort of firing point, and then there's a range inside of each burner assembly to, you know, for instance, we have burners that have a four to one turndown ratio. And most people know that means that they can efficiently operate down to a quarter of the, the nominal rating without getting all, all weird and burning out or burning dirty or whatever. Uh, but we're able to take that to a higher turn down rate by having multiple burner assemblies distributed under the still. But, you know, the so the only regulation that goes into it has to do with safety stuff. So making sure, for instance, that we have a hot pilot, essentially, if we're pushing gas in there, then there are other sorts of safeties that link in. Um, I kind of call them, like, you know, scram protocol. <laughs> so basically, there are certain scenarios where you want to shut down the still, you know, it doesn't like if there's a fire in the building, if the water cooling system stops working or the power goes out or any number of things that can mean a potentially unsafe condition, you know, our scram protocol essentially makes sure that the condenser has plenty of water and that the burner has no gas. <laughs> so we stop, stop making vapor and cool what you've got because that creates a stable shutdown scenario and, and you don't have any runaway, runaway systems makes perfect sense uh with with the cooling uh what are you doing on on the back end of your stills or are you doing anything like thumpers or uh you know what are you what are you doing on you know the, the second half of your we just your process? we just use yeah we use um shell and tube condensers um pretty standard stuff there mine tend to be longer um i like that long cool down that you get to give more copper more hot copper contact um, and you know, that's probably the only functional difference in terms of how it performs on the spirit. Um, there are other little things that we do, like I use double tube sheets. Um, this is kind of the distiller turned still maker saying, I just, I don't like the idea of cooling water leaking into my spirit at all, ever. So, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the double tube sheet scenario, but the idea is that each end rather than having a single tube sheet that provides the barrier between the water box and the shell, you have two tube sheets and they're separated by a gap. And so if there's any leaking, for instance, around the tube seal in the water box, it leaks into the void and not into the shell and vice versa for the, for the shell side. So it provides a certain level of verification. I mean, of course, eventually all shell and tube condensers are gonna blow a tube, but that's pretty, that's pretty binary, <laughs> you know? When the still isn't on and you turn the condenser water on and stuff starts flooding out of the uh, spirit safe, you, you got a problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's it. You, you, you got a, a confirmation that you have a, a leak there. But, you know, that's true of all shell and tube heat exchangers, right? Eventually you're, you're gonna have to cut tubes and replace them, roll in new tubes. That's pretty standard in boilers or other types of, uh, of similarly built uh, heat exchangers, but 
but you don't have a sort of slow leak of either city water or in our case, we actually use a recirculating system um, to minimize our water usage. So, you know, you've got something that'll have bacterial inhibitors. You just got stuff you don't want to mix with your whiskey in there. Uh, out of curiosity, this is mainly for my own interest more so than our listeners. Uh, have you ever looked at doing a uh, a second tube inside your tube and shell? So basically you're creating a, a donut for the vapor to flow down. Uh, and that way you can you know quadruple your copper contact and decrease your, your length considerably. Are you talking about doing, you say a donut, are you talking about like a YouTube configuration or what do you mean? Uh, more basically, uh, basically you're creating a, an annulus. So you'd have a, call it a five chamber system where the first and fifth chamber would have cold water flowing kind of up the middle. The second and fourth chamber would be your, your vapor and distillate path. And then the first chamber would be your conventional exterior cold water on uh, the outside of your, your tube. So basically you have a, you know, an annular space that that vapor is going down and you're tripling or quadrupling your, your copper cotton. Yeah. I mean, we do, what we do is we do baffles. Okay. So we may have say a, a 10 foot condenser and every between four and eight inches, there's going to be a baffle on the shell side, uh, directing that vapor back and forth in and out, you know, to maximize that, the, well, to maintain the, the degree of turbulence that you want to have and to maximize copper contact. But that's that's just how we do that. Uh, yeah, we want we wanted we wanted to be a gradual cooling process too. Yeah, and that then that's the downside of the double wall is you can really cool some things cool some things down. Um, so just to jump into something a little controversial, how what is your opinion on line arm slope? Does it matter? Uh, when does it matter? That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean to me that's. There really, there shouldn't be that much uh, controversy because it's just physics, right? So here's what I mean. As long as you're pointed upward, gravity will tell you that anything that condenses from that point will trickle down, so back toward the pot rather than to the condenser. Point being, if at the point in your system where things point down, you're essentially pre-condensing. Right, because whatever it is, whatever the, the whether all of the vapor or some of the vapor is condensed, it will all eventually be condensed in the condenser, presumably. And so, which portions of it get condensed first aren't as critical. Now, when a line arm is pointed upward, in other words, any condensation of vapors is coming back toward the pot, then you've got something different because if you run the still in a high reflux situation you can create a lot of a lot of thermal gradient as you go up the still and so you're selectively redistilling you know the the vapors that are trickling back down whatever whatever feature you have that said you know you put enough heat on that still and it won't really much matter because you're just you know blasting things through um and the, the amount of cooling in the room or, or whatever it is that would provide that reflux becomes minuscule compared to the rest of the system. And then you just, you know, stuff hits the condenser and condenses. But, you know, if you want the potential for reflux in a pot still scenario, then, yeah, you need surface area and you need it to be upward angled 
so that you can have things trickling back down toward hotter vapors to create that that uh, essentially kind of an this gets I want to say an infinite number of distillations although that you know now we're talking indiscreet math but you know what I'm talking about that you create some uh, indiscreet amount of reflux that depends on the setup depends on the room depends on the burner system etc but nonetheless you're going to be more selectively taking things off the still and at a higher proof than if you were just collecting the vapor right off the boiling uh, liquid surface. Yeah, and I guess the, the controversy I've read is at what point does the line arm matter if it's, you know, so short that there's not enough time, you know, to create any interior reflux, then its angle doesn't matter and you need to achieve either a surface area volume or a, a length requirement, which is the same thing in order to create any reflux in your line arm. Yeah, I mean, I, right. What I would say is, is you know, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like sticking your hand out the window and asking if it causes drag, right? Like, well, how far did you stick it out? How fast are you going and how big is your hand? <laughs> you know, it kind of depends on those things. Um, you know, there's always going to be some some effect but I guess what I'm really saying is it's, it's one of a number of different things that are going to create the potential for certain distilling effects. So it's important, but not just on its own, right? So having adequate burner control, having adequate air circulation in the room, and you know having an overall still design where you can hold that level of reflux relatively stable when you're, you know, when you're trying to do that, all of those things are going to determine the effect of that particular line arm. So it's 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 an important factor of several, I think, that they kind of dictate how you can run a still. Yeah, I, that's actually where I've ended up on the, the issue as well. Um, one last thing to talk about is uh, the heads. And you're saying, you know, you run a fairly simple head shape. Do you do any work on your stills with interchangeable heads where, you know, today I'm running uh, a pot, uh, you know, tomorrow I can change out the, the fitting and now I have, a, a say, a short column, uh, any kind of interchangeability like that? Well, I mean, we don't typically do that. We, we always do uh, a flange between the pot and the, the neck. So in theory, that's always a possibility. Um, that's mostly for pragmatic reasons in terms of moving a, a finish still into position or replacing parts. But um, you know, that's not something that I, I tend to just design stills or a collection of stills that do what I want, because I, I guess this in part depends on the size of your still. So our wash stills, for instance, are about 2,500 gallons. Tiny. I, I understand what you're talking about. All the, all those small stills out there. Well, yeah. What I'm saying is if you have a small still, then it's a lot more, you know, if two guys can safely lift a head off and put a new head on, that's one thing. Not, it's not my particular thing that I like to, to do a lot. You know, the, the first thing that would come to mind is to say, okay, you know, if you do that, do make sure that you're constantly checking gaskets and that the people who are attaching bolts and such know about, you know, torque wrenches and, you know, make, make sure you don't break it trying to fix it because uh, that happens more than you think. But, um, you know, our, our necks are, are a little bit larger, uh, and so that makes it a little less practical to remove a, you know, 
3,000 pound head uh, to bring the the overhead crane and the, you know it's 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 a it's a rigging company kind of affair. So, but also too, um, I try to just design stills that have the flexibility that I want. Um, you know, I I tend to design stills that angle upward and have fewer maybe elaborate curves in certain ways but more elaborate line arms or necks or things that kind of control the fluid dynamics. You know, it's... Because one of the interesting things about, like, a, if you could, you know, if you could see... Again, this is just fluid dynamics. If you can see inside, say, a, a boiling ball or a typical, like, cognac um, alembic still, what's going on in that head is going to look pretty different at different distillation rates. And... You know, that means if you're really dialed in on your distillation rate, it just gives you a lot of variability compared to longer, straighter setups. You, you see what I mean? Uh, because because you're creating some turbulence, and how much turbulence and how much it affects the spirit depends a lot with those kinds of, of heads. And is that generally what you're you're putting on your equipment right now? Is either you know kind of an Olympic style or where you have an expansion chamber uh, heading up? Ours, you know, for for lack of a picture, you know, ours look more Scottish, uh, less the boiling ball or something. Um, they tend to taper upward and not expand back out again. But then the the way in which they they do that exactly and the line arm designs are often uh, different and more elaborate. But the sort of general tapering that you would often see in Scottish and Irish stills, you know, again, I'm not... Uh, there are certainly exceptions with lantern shapes or boiling balls, but uh, for those that don't have that, I think those are probably more akin in shape, generally, to what we're building. That makes sense. Uh, what are you guys doing for cleaning your stills? Uh, are you looking at spray ball placement to ensure, you know, that you're removing any sulfur that, that might precipitate out? Or how does how do you design the, the cleaning end? Uh, we're, we're really careful about cleaning, especially in terms of not doing it when it's not necessary. Um, you know, we'll, we'll clean out stills with a, with, a, with a hose, pretty much. Make sure that the uh, sight glass is clean because it's a side glass and we need to be able to see through it. Uh, obviously, the heating surfaces need to be clean, and that doesn't necessarily mean shiny copper, although that's usually what you're looking at because of the acid uh, in the wash. You know, if you're, if you're talking uh, uh, direct fire scenario, first distillation, uh, you got to be more careful about burning, but then the higher acid content is going to tend to clean the copper outside of any burning effects. Um, so, you know, I don't really find any need to clean stills. And part of that is because, you know, when people do use acids or caustics or whatever, uh, that's really hard on copper. I mean, it, it, it can be done occasionally, uh, but I just, I just don't like it. <laughs> I mean, there have been a number of incidents connecting to copper or cupric metals being pitted or damaged by caustic solutions and causing safety situations. 
Um, soft metals and caustics just really, you can buffer, you know, you can buffer those cleaning things to make it less damaging, but it's still damaging. And so, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not a fan of, of, of CIP inside a still. Now, obviously other scenarios, absolutely, <laughs> you know, mash ton, uh, cereal cooker, fermenters, you know, anything else, of course. But with stills, you know, we, we wipe them on the outside with a wet rag and we spray them down with a hose on the inside. Maybe use a scotch bright or something on the inside of a side glass if necessary. Um, but, but that's about it. So what piece of equipment do you think is the, the most important to focus on when you're, you're starting your distillery? Huh. Uh, <laughs> hmm. All of it? Um, that's a hard question to answer. From what standpoint? Money, practicality, safety, quality, from what standpoint? Uh, I'd go with pick one. What, what, if you were going to start a distillery, where would you focus your time and effort on selecting the exact right piece of equipment? Well, I mean, I kind of will answer your question this way. I mean, I think a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people who want my help and or advice starting a distillery. And the first question I pursue and rarely get a good answer to is what do you want to make? And they say, whiskey. I said, okay, what kind of whiskey? And they say, well, we're thinking this, we're thinking. I was like, okay, no, no, no. I need you to say, hey, I want to make a corn whiskey that's reminiscent of these brands, but has this aspect. Like, I need a flavor profile. What is it you want to make? And if it's more than one thing, fine. But what do you want to make? Because we can't figure out how we're going to make it till we figure out what it is we're going to make. And then you work backwards from there. So... You know, if you're going to work with a bunch of bits and solids, like for us, you could say that multi-tube and tube heat exchanger is a critical piece of equipment. It might be irrelevant for other people, depending on what it is you want to try to distill. I mean, obviously picking your stills is really critical. I mean, having the right still is, you know, there's any number of right answers, but there's even more wrong answers. So that's definitely... I think picking a flavor profile and then stills around that, then you get down to sort of process aspects and you can answer all the other questions. Like how much are we going to make and et cetera, et cetera. But you really have to design, you have to design around your product. And I think that's one of the problems that, that some people face is that they don't really know what they want to make. I agree completely. I get asked all the time, well, what's the best still? Uh, I don't know. What are you going to make with your still? Yeah, exactly. Where do you see the industry going in the next five to ten years? Um, I mean, I think we're really going to come into... I think there's going to be a level of maturity. You know, I think we're going to continue to see some expansion in terms of number of distillers. And we'll probably see news articles that say that the whole world has changed forever and will never be the same. And Five years later, we'll say that, you know, we'll read stories that say the craft distilling is dead and, you know, it'll be somewhere in between. I mean, there's going to be, there'll be some point at which the number of craft distillers starts declining, but I don't think that's going to be a bad sign necessarily for the industry. I mean, there are a lot of people 
getting into this based on the number of people that are getting into this that maybe shouldn't be. And we're going to see more, you're going to see some consolidation, hopefully not mostly by purchasing, although that's been the pattern of late, but, you know, things will kind of settle down. And the most important thing I think will be that although craft distilling is some conversations are almost tired for us, most people have never even heard of craft distilling yet. And that's an important thing to realize that like the heyday of craft distilling, like you can go to the grocery store and buy craft beer, probably 10 different kinds of craft beer. You can get that at the corner store. And that was not the case in 1985. And so the advent of, you know, most people even knowing that our movement exists, that's coming up soon and that's going to be kind of cool. And and I think it's important, you know, what we make and how we present ourselves because we're not on stage yet. I mean, we kind of are, but you know what I'm saying? Like what what mainstream what the mainstream population thinks craft distilling is is still being shaped, I think to a large degree because it isn't really out there yet. It hasn't been around long enough. Uh, if you were going to start your distillery over or start a new distillery or another new distillery, what do you think is something that most people aren't focusing on that should be focused on? Oh, so many things. <laughs> so many things. I mean, it's like we spent the last three years building the framework into which we're you know, putting this distillery which, you know, whether they say it or not, I think a lot of people are kind of like, what the hell takes three years? But it's like, well, and in this, some of this may be particular to our distillery in terms of not only location, but more size. You know, we have to negotiate directly with utilities because we needed a 12 inch water line. And the amount of power that we draw is actually going to change, you know, the, the induction of the overall power grid and that has been accounted for with capacitance. I mean, there's like a different level of engineering that comes into it. Um, I don't know if there's any one answer for most people, but certainly setting up the staff, the corporate structure, the financing and the space is a lot more important than most people realize. They, they try to kind of fix it after the fact and that's not always possible. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for your time today. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And uh, look forward to hearing more of the podcast. Today's interview is brought to you by the team of architects and engineers at Dalkita. Dalkita has been serving the craft distilling industry for over 13 years and are committed to production facilities that work. Now let's get back to the show. Thanks again to Chip Tate for taking the time to talk with us today. Up next, we've got our captive distilling student, DJ, and his monologue on the anatomy of a pot still. So, I got a couple of comments after our first episode that I focused way too much on column stills, and I didn't talk enough about pot stills. And I'm right in the middle of doing a, a custom still design for a client who's got a, a great manufacturer but doesn't necessarily know anything about what you need in a still. And so I figured that was a great opportunity to take some of the calculations I'm already doing, bring them to you guys, and kind of show you what you need to do to design a still. 
uh, in this case, a pot still. So let's uh, kind of get started on this. Uh, I like to look at the, the still, particularly a pot still, or any still for that matter, as three components. We have our pot, which is where we're going to charge with our wash or our low winds. We have our head, which can be the pot still head, uh, a column on our column still. And what I think of as the head goes all the way through the gin basket or thumper if we have one. And then the last component is the condenser or whatever we're using for cooling. And so I'll kind of address the design of the three components and we'll go through it and see what, what you think. So uh, with the pot, basically the way I design stills, I guess the first thing to talk about is materials. So everything in contact with liquid should be stainless steel and everything in contact with the vapor should be copper. Uh, the reason I do this is that copper has, uh, well, obviously we've talked about the properties for working as a catalyst and changing the flavor of the spirit, so that's that's probably the best thing. But it also does uh, has great thermal properties. It's very conductive of heat. So this is terrible in your pot because any heat you're putting into your pot can then be radiated back through the edge. This is not terrible, I guess, if you're direct-fired. If you have a direct fired still, you do want your pot to be copper. You'll get more even heating that way, and you'll be able to uh, bring that heat up from the, the the fire up into your liquid better and more efficiently. Uh, if you have a properly designed firebox, you can get really efficient here. So if for people who are direct fired, then yes, you do want a, a copper pot or at least a, a copper bottom on your pot. We'll just leave it there. But if you are doing either uh, direct steam or you are doing a, a steam coil, anything that is heating the liquid directly or in your liquid, then you want to have stainless on the outside of your pot so that you can keep all that heat in there. The vast majority of the stills I design are uh, steam coils in the liquid, so I want a stainless exterior to try to keep as much heat in there as possible. Typically, the difference between stainless and copper is something on the order of five to six times uh, the thermal resistance, depending on where you want to call it. So just having that stainless will give you a little bit of insulation. If you are using copper, honestly, even if you're using stainless, we should probably be insulating our pots. So a great way to do this is have a stainless main vessel, then have a row of insulation. Then outside of that, put a really thin layer of copper. That way everybody goes, oh, look at that pretty copper still. And you're still being able to take all the energy that you put into your pot and put it into your liquid and get it going rather than having to radiate it out into the room and then cool the room. So that's the material. Um, in terms of thickness, if you are going direct fire, your material needs to be at least one and a half times thicker than it would be if you weren't direct fired. So if you were doing copper and say you had a, a 10 mil copper plate on the bottom, that would be okay. But if you were then going direct fire, you need to be at least 15 mil, 16 mil, somewhere in that range for thickness on that bottom plate. Now, that math doesn't work if you're going from copper to stainless, but kind of gives you an idea. For really small stills, uh, we're talking 3 sixteenths, a uh, quarter inch, somewhere in that range for stainless. Thickness is something I like to use pressure vessel calculations for. So generally, we're going to look up what the uh, tensile strength is of the material, you know, 304 stainless or whatever. Then we're going to take roughly a third off of that to use as our ultimate strength we can get to. And then we're going to say, okay, this is not a pressure vessel. 
So maximum pressure in here is going to be 15 PSI. At the top, or wherever we're putting our pressure relief valve, and then we're going to take the height of the liquid. So if you have a real tall skinny pot for some reason, not great for distillation, but hey, let's say you're doing it and you're, you know, three or four or five feet tall in your pot, then you'll add about a half PSI per foot to get you down to what the pressure is going to be at the uh, base of your pot. And then you can use that to figure out uh, times the surface area of your pot divided by... Uh, what the maximum pressure is and figure out, okay, how thick does this need to be? It's, it's not that complicated. It's maybe, you know, a minute or two of math, but we need to make sure we're, we're looking at that. If for some reason you want to design a presser vessel, please get a professional engineer to do the work. Uh, that's not something you need to have, uh, just your uh, regular fabricator down the street slapping together. That being said, you shouldn't design pressure vessels. Anyhow, uh, there's, no reason to maintain pressure in a still. It's it's terrible for your distillation anyhow. So that being said, if I designed at 15 PSI, we would have a pressure relief valve set much lower than 15. Uh, but that way we're making sure that the material is thick enough. We won't have any issues. Talking about that, let's make sure we have a pressure relief valve on the still body. If you aren't doing a pot still and you do have a column still, there's potential for liquid up in there to cause a vacuum. So you want to make sure you have both a vacuum break on the pot body as well as on your column. That way, if there is any interference in there, you won't accidentally collapse your pot. But today we're talking about pot stills. So you only need one, and let's make sure we have a vacuum break at the highest point in the system that's open. So generally, that means at the top of our line arm, we'll have our vacuum breaker. And then at the lowest point in the system, in the air part of the system, is where we're going to put our pressure relief valve. So that would be basically right above the liquid leg. I've found that for sizing your vacuum breakers, you want to look at the drain rate. So if you are planning on, say, emptying your still in an hour after distillation, look at your gallons per minute from that, then use that to size your vacuum breaker. That's typically going to be a worse case scenario than just vapor cooling in the still if you turn it off and walk away. Although... Check it. You never know. It could be the other way around. Other things on the pot are the steam coil. So the steam coil goes back to our conversation a couple episodes back about cooling. So we can use those same calculations we did for cooling to figure out how much energy we need to put into the pot. Generally speaking, I like to use a one-hour heat up to get from room temperature, call it 70 degrees, to distillation temperature, 173. So... Basically, we're looking at a 100-degree temperature increase in one hour. And so that works out really well for, for easy math. So if we have a 500-gallon still, that weighs roughly 800 pounds. And we need to take that 800 pounds of, we'll call it water, and increase it 100 degrees. So we're looking right around 80,000 BTUs an hour in order to make that jump. That's... Not that complicated. Uh, you'll see a lot of rules of thumb out there on the internet where, or, or from still manufacturers that say uh, one pound of steam per gallon. And that works out, you know, within like 5% or so of me calculating it that way. So either one, you're, you're going to be good enough for sizing the boiler to run your system. Once you have that heat that you're putting into your still, we need to look at sizing your steam coil. 
Uh, a couple different ways to look at sizing it is material. If you are going to use stainless, because that's what most steam systems are based off of, then I typically recommend using a thicker metal, typically at least schedule 80. That way we can, if there is carbonic acid creation uh, after the heat comes out of the steam, that coil will last longer and you won't have a coil failure that ruins your still. That being said, if you were really going to design it to be as perfect as possible, uh, we would look at using copper in there for the steam coil. I am not going to get into designing copper steam lines. That is a uh, complicated topic and you should hire somebody to do that. Dimensions, that's one last thing. So for me, I like to design as compact of pots as I can, which in a perfect world would mean spheres. Uh, in reality, what I do is I calculate the spherical volume for my pot size, then turn that into a circle, and then figure out what the cylinder height would be off of that. So generally speaking, my stills will be about as tall as they are wide in diameter. That will give me the smallest surface on the outside to insulate, and we can focus on getting all the heat into the pot. The other way to look at it is to increase the radius on your still as much as practical, decrease that height so that you can create the largest evaporation surface. Uh, this will enable you to move the largest amount of fluid through your still as fast as possible. Uh, this is really good for stripping stills and things that you want to blow through quickly. Tomato, tomato, you can... You can pick one shape or the other. Either way, just make sure you're, you're insulating it and keeping all that heat in there. Once we get out of the pot, the last thing to talk about is the neck. So since our pot has been, in my opinion, made out of stainless, we need to have a gasket of some sort to separate it from the copper in the vapor portion. Copper and stainless will create a mild galvanic reaction, particularly if there's liquid across there and you're, basically your copper will get eaten away and played out on your stainless. So this will shorten the length of time, uh, lifetime of your still if you don't have a rubber barrier of some sort between them. So I like to say stainless pot, then I typically do a, a triclover type fitting, uh, depending on still size, maybe a bolted fitting, and then we'll uh, go up to the copper neck. This isn't perfect. Uh, in theory, you would like to have everything above your liquid leg as copper. So, um, like I was just saying, you're going to have your cylinder of liquid, and then you want some kind of conical top on there to neck down to your neck. And so, in, in a perfect world, as soon as you got off of that cylindrical base, you would switch over to copper. I haven't found a good way to do that and not create galvanic reactions in there. So, And you'll see it from most manufacturers. It'll either be all copper or all stainless. You won't see people swapping back and forth too often. So once you get into your head, there's a whole lot of debates of how the shape of the head affects it. Generally speaking, there's three kind of properties that are going to rule all. One is the amount of copper. So the more surface area of copper you can pack into the head, the more reaction surface you'll have available for your spirit. I'm not talking about packing or still with, you know, copper mesh, although obviously that works. I think that moves us more into a column still design, and you'd have to look at it from theoretical plates and flow rates and that kind of thing. On a pot still, what it generally means is we are going to try to do spheres and do weird expansion shapes 
so that uh, the spirit comes up and then has a large area to uh, boil into. You know, this is where some of the, the diamonds or onions come in, and you, you can see all kinds of, of interesting shapes out there. I, I don't really have an opinion about what shape is best. Uh, it's just kind of a, a fact of life. So the next thing that will affect your still is the ratios. So I guess we'll do a little engineering here. The Jules-Thompson effect is basically what makes refrigerators work. What that means is that when a saturated liquid, or for that matter any vapor, is neck down or throttled, its temperature will then decrease. So when you go from your, your wide boil surface on your pot down to a small neck, going through that neck, you'll have a rate increase in the, uh, the vapor, and that will cause the temperature to drop. And this temperature dropping then can cause some of the liquid to come out, and we'll see a, a lower, if it was steam, we'd call it quality. So this is good because we can then use this to create reflux in our pot still. And going from the wide pot body to a narrow neck to, say, a wide body on your boil ball or your diamond or onion, whatever we want to call it, down to another narrow neck, and then you'll see people stacking these things. And then we'll have another expansion chamber and another contraction going to the line arm. Each of those is basically a guaranteed reflux point, particularly if properly designed. And so you can say, oh, look, this still is going to have at least three points uh, of reflux just from the Jules-Thompson effect. I, I think it's important to look at. I don't necessarily know, you know, if you want to stack multiple diamonds, at some point you just say, hey, why don't you just get a plated still? But it's something you need to look at when you're designing it. How much temperature do you drop do you want through those throttle points? How much do you want to drop out? If you throttle it too much, you can actually create a space where you've gotten basically all the reflux is occurring in that spot, and you're going to have to really crank on your temperature to force anything through it. I typically start looking at, okay, so I have my BTUs coming into the still during heat up. I want 20% while I'm running it, so that's going to give me a volume of evaporation at least at the start, and I just use initial conditions. I don't model it all the way through. Now I have my volume coming up. It's going to go through my throttle point. Let's say I want a 10-degree Kelvin uh, drop through my throttle point so that I get a, you know, 50% increase in quality. That's fairly simple math. We do all that, and we create what our neck sizes need to be. The last part of the head is the surface area. So now that we're in copper... Uh, part of it's for the reaction, but the other part is, like I said earlier, it's very thermally efficient. So what that means is as your vapor is rising through the head, it's giving off heat into the room. Uh, this is one reason, amongst many, that you want copper up here. So by giving away its heat, therefore it causes reflux. That's why you can see, say, the nice swan necks over in Scotland. They don't have any expansion points. They don't have a lot of that stuff. They just have big, long lengths of copper that will just cause reflux naturally as heat's given off. It works great. So how much heat is given off is a function of the area of the head. So if you look at, say, the onion shapes on your cognac stills, they do have an expansion point in the neck, but then they just go out into this huge ball that is somewhere in the neighborhood of a third to 50% of the size of the pot body. 
And what that does is it creates this huge area for heat to vapor off on. And so as this heat's coming off, it's blowing into the room, and you're going to get a lot of reflux that way. So those are the three main things to look at when you're designing your head shape, is how much reflux do you want to cause? How do you want to cause that reflux? And then use that to design what shape you're looking for. This is where you really get to play as a designer, and I like it. Coming off of there, we're going to move into our gin basket or our thumper or not. If you're going to be using a thumper, typically, first of all, make sure that you're not creating too much back pressure on your still. Uh, the liquid leg in your thumper is going to create back pressure. So first of all, make sure we not only have a vacuum brake and a, a pressure relief behind that, but we have one on the other side as well, just in case anything weird goes on in there. There's a whole lot of science going on with, with thumpers because you're going to charge it with alcohol vapor and then you're going to increase the temperature in the thumper. You're basically creating an additional leg of reflux. And depending what you charge it at, so if you charge your thumper with NGS, then it's going to have a huge amount of alcohol that'll start boiling off almost immediately. But if you do, say, a 10% charge, you're charging it with the, the same as your wash that temperature's got to really increase a, a long way from all this other steam. And that vapor then will cause some of the flavor characteristics to come off of that uh, pot. I've never really played much with thumpers. I know the basic math around them. I've designed a couple. I, I'm sure some of you guys know a lot about them. Shoot me an email. Let me know in the comments uh, what you think about thumper design. How do you design your thumper? They get pretty interesting. With gin baskets, there's a couple different ways to do them. One is in the, the column or the head. The other one is off on the, the line arm side. I vastly prefer doing it in the uh, carter head or line arm style. That way we can control where the oil goes. Uh, if you put it in your column or in your pot, all that oil is just going to drip straight down into your pot and you've got to clean it up later. Uh, if you have it over on the carter side, uh, you can run that drain pipe back into your pot body if you you'd like. I typically don't. I run it just to a drip leg and on a valve with a, with a sight glass so you can ensure there's some liquid staying in your leg. And you just open it and you can drain that oil into a separate pot. The nice thing there is you can then control, you know, throw out the oil, put it into your spirit. You can decide how much. You can use it for bitters. Uh, it just gives you a lot of control for basically no cost. And it makes the cleaning a whole lot easier. A couple things to note. If you are developing a liquid leg in your carter head, then now you have a thumper, so you can get a proof increase. Uh, you can also create pressure buildup, so safety is a huge thing with these things, and make sure we're, we're designing them appropriately. Uh, next part of designing your gin head basket, however we're, we're, we're looking at it, is to ensure that the vapor flow through the, the basket is consistent. Um, we need to try to, first of all, get some kind of laminar flow through the cylinder. That way we're getting an equal amount of vapor into every single part. And we need to ensure that we're not bypassing or missing any ingredients where then you have to put more in there to make up for the amount that's missing. Uh, it's not that hard. Basically, we're going back to where we were at the, the head of the pot. And we know, generally speaking, what the flow rate is off of our still for a given temperature and input. 
you design what you want your temperature input range to be for your still, and then say, okay, now we know this many cubic feet is going to be moving through the head every hour or every minute. And so then, let's say we're doing copper, it's smooth wall sides with a, a nice weld that's uh, ground down. Say, okay, you know, this is where we're looking for our friction factors. And okay, here's where we're at. Now we're in laminar flow with this rate. Once you have that, then you just pick the right diameter and you're, you're good to go. It's, it's not that complicated of math. Line arms. So everybody likes to talk about line arm angle. I don't think it matters for most of the distilleries out there. Uh, and the reason I don't think it matters is the, the theory behind line arm angle is that you will have some reflux in your line arm. And if that line arm is pointed up, the reflux will run back to your head and pot to be redistilled. If it is down, it'll all run into the still. If it's flat, some runs each way. The reason I don't think it matters is if you look at the number of BTUs lost per, say, square foot of copper. It's large, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand, if I remember correctly. It's been, I don't know, five or six hours since I've looked at this. Anyhow, so that thousand BTUs, we're talking about putting something on the order of about 30,000 BTUs into your pot each hour during distillation for a small still. This is that little one I'm telling you about. So if we're putting in 30,000, that means just to kind of cross back over across that line, back to a liquid to, to create that reflux, we need to remove about 30,000. So roughly speaking, that means we need 30 square feet of copper in our line arm. If you have a one inch line arm, you have less than one inch of copper, which means you need something on the order of like a 300 foot line arm to create enough reflux to cause enough heat loss to cause any reflux. Now let's start talking about, you know, a four inch line arm. Now we're all of a sudden looking somewhere on the neighborhood of, oh, I hate doing this math in my head. Uh, so four inches turns into 16, turns into 40 ish square inches which all of a sudden means we're getting roughly three feet uh, per inch, right? I'll have it in my show notes. Don't worry about the math too much. So if we have um, three feet per inch, now we need a 10-foot line arm to get our 30. So unless you're running a 10-foot long 4-inch line arm, you're not creating the reflux anyhow. And who's running a 4-inch line arm on a 200-gallon still? Now, that being said... Big stills, big line arms, long throws, this starts mattering. It, it really is a big deal, you know, for the big scotch distilleries. But for somebody running a 500-gallon uh, still that has a 10-foot line arm, it's not worth talking about. That being said, lots of people disagree with me, so there's that. Are you interested in filing a report with us? Well, we're actively seeking professionals to give us the lowdown on the technical aspects of distillery operations for our listeners. Contact us via our website with your pitch. Do you have feedback on this show? Well, send us an email to distillingcraft at dalkita.com. Of course, if you want to find out more about this specific episode, go to our show notes on our webpage. That's dalkita.com slash show notes. 
Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And finally, a special thanks to the Dalkita team behind this production and the man that puts it all together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft. Cheers. Cheers.